0: Hello and welcome to the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton with the ONTIC Center for Connected Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the US State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of safety, security and protection through conversations with leaders in the field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Cynthia Marble. Cindy serves as the Senior Director of Threat Management Operations for ONTIC. She is a nationally recognized leader in the fields of threat assessment and threat management, protective intelligence, investigations, national security, executive protection, and global security operations. Before joining ONTIC, Cindy served for over 26 years with the U.S. Secret Service, most recently as the Special Agent in Charge for the U.S. Secret Service Houston Field Office. She has extensive experience conducting as well as supervising threat assessment and protective intelligence investigations on high-profile public officials and public figures. She also served as a Senior Supervisor on the Secret Service Presidential Protective Division. In 2023, Cindy received the honor of being named to the Security Industry Association Women in Security Forum Power 100 list. Cindy, welcome to the Ontake Protective Intelligence podcast. Thank you, Fred. It's, uh, it's great to be here with you. Wow, Cindy, you've had such a storied career. Uh, tell the audience about your background and how did you get into the field of protection?
1: Well, I am a uh, 26, almost 27-year veteran of the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, started way back when in uh, 1989 in the Houston field office. You know, I, I got into protection or into the Secret Service really for kind of like a love of law and law enforcement. And um, I was going to pursue a, a law degree and then decided I wanted to go out and, and get some experience. and. Really, just by research and and things like that, I I looked into the Secret Service and thought, well, this sounds pretty interesting and started talking with the folks in in Houston. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. 27 years later, I retired um, and joined the private sector and a couple of years
0: ago, joined ONTIC. With an election coming up, there's certainly a lot of interest in how protectees are covered, Cindy can you give some insight into the level of security given to candidates and their families at this stage? And at what point does uh, the secret service like swoop in and
1: take over viable presidential candidates? You know, right now we're October. We're, we're getting into October. Um, we're still more than a year out. So typically we're not picking up candidates yet. That's, uh, it's usually within the year timeframe that uh, the Congressional Advisory Committee starts looking at the candidates, looking at the viability, uh, as you mentioned, of the candidates and determining, um, you know, the protection needs at that time. So it's not a decision that the Secret Service makes, which a lot of people think it's, it is it is our decision or the service's decision to make, but it's not. I mean, we're directed. I I always think back to a campaign T-shirt I saw way back when, I think it was the 1990 campaign of, you know, that we were wearing that says, you elect them, we protect them. We, we don't make the decision. The Secret Service doesn't make the decision. Um, it's, that's done, you know, now by the secretary of DHS based on that, uh, the consult that he gets from the advisory committee. And I just know
0: from my career in the protection space, too, Cindy, a lot of this is very much threat-driven. Am I
1: correct? Um, yes. I mean, it again, just in, in general, we look at the – or the committees look at the, the viability of the candidates. But it is threat-driven as far as the extent of the protection and um, exactly what type of, of resources are involved. Um, Some candidates will get protection, you know, outside that year uh, that we that typically is done based on information coming in, based on intelligence, based on profile, things like that. Um, But in general, those candidates that are deemed viable within that year are going to get protection. Cindy, I know they've changed the
0: statutes, and perhaps I'm dating myself with this too, but I, I know presidents uh used to get coverage for life. Is that no longer in effect?
1: Well, it's yes and no is the answer to that question. Um I believe it was back in the Clinton administration that um that it was changed, that where it would be ten years post post term, post presidency, but Every president since then has continued to receive protection after that 10 years. Um, so although the statute might be different, it is, it is the president, that, again, who, who makes that decision to continue it, I believe. Um, that's my understanding of how it works now. And I know the wives used to have
0: coverage, too, because when I started uh, in 1981, Mrs. Truman was still alive in Independence, Missouri. And I know she was still getting coverage uh, along
1: with uh, Lady Bird Johnson here in Austin, Texas. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Dating myself as well. um, A lot of my colleagues, contemporaries were were on Lady Bird's detail. So that uh, as a former, of course. So yeah, um, and and they still do. Um, they still do receive protection. When you start looking at uh, some of the major
0: special events that you've covered uh, over the years, whether it be campaigns or inaugurations, what has been the most challenging for you in retrospect? Oh my goodness!
1: Um, you know the campaigns to me, I thought were were actually fun. They were so high energy so, um, intense that I don't know if I th- thought of them as challenging, but I just, you were, you know, you were always on, you were always on, had to be on your game. Um, the travel is, is intense. And maybe that's really where the challenge comes in. It's not so much the, the actual work or the event, but the fact of, especially a campaign year, when you're working a campaign, if you're not on a a major detail, the president's detail or the vice president's detail, you're, you're rolling, um, you know, constantly. It's, it's three weeks on three weeks off, or at least it was uh, back when I was doing it. And it's, it's a straight three weeks. There are no days off. And oftentimes you're, you're going to one city hopping on a plane commercial aircraft because not everybody can fit on the candidate's plane and you're hopping to another city and sometimes you're, you know, sleep is, is not primary at that point. You're, you're, you're working. So that's really where the challenge is. Um, I think the work and the training that the secret service gets to be able to handle um, the volume is, you know, that's what gets us through it. We're, you know, they rely on their training they rely on their experience um so the events themselves are you know obviously they're high high stakes and, and intense but but manageable
0: and no shortage of uh, threats in today's world as uh most of our listeners can imagine when you start looking at that uh when you were actually on the presidential protection details mm-hmm. uh Cindy, what worried you the most uh, when it comes to just working a crowd or working an
1: event? You know, I think what what always worries us is what we don't know, and it's it's honestly looking for that that one thing that is out of place, out of ordinary. You know, just being vigilant. I always used to say, I, I know I things don't worry me, but they do concern me. And and to me, there's a difference. Um, And the way to alleviate the concern is to be educated. And I think always making sure that you're on top of things and and knowing what's going on um, and just being, you know, open to new information helps inform how we work an event. Um, So, I, I was, I was definitely worried about the things that I didn't know. And I think being comfortable with understanding that you don't, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Right. <laughs> and, and, and just being open to all possibilities. Um, I always felt that again, I think that going back to the, the training and the preparation of, of the agents, of the officers, of all the support staff, um, you know, I relied on that and there was comfort in that. Um, working a rope line, standing right next to the president, um, working with with the entire team and and having that faith in, you know, my fellow agents and, and the officers that were around um, it. You know, I, I never went into anything being worried and the logistics, I think most people
0: have no idea about the amount of coordination and logistics that takes place, especially for special events
1: yeah, um, honestly that, that to me that was one of the the things that was the most fun um, was the planning and the logistics and there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts that people can't even imagine um, and, and as a young agent. Not being exposed to it on, on the level of, of what goes on either during a campaign or, or, or you know in, inside a major detail, you don't really understand it until you're there and you see it, just all the players that are involved. And it's not just the service, it's, it's, it's the support agencies that we use are you know the, the secret service works on the, the counterpart system. So we, we need other people. The service needs other people to be able to get the job done. It's working hand-in-hand with the military. It's working hand-in-hand with state and locals. It's working hand-in-hand with other agencies. I'm Fred, your agency and my agency used to travel together, work together, coordinate together. Um, there are a lot of players involved in even even the smallest event, even the smallest Movement, as we we called them, from you know even something from you know leaving the White House grounds to going over to the State Department. There are a lot of players involved, a lot of a lot of moving parts. Yeah, certainly with a zero fail mission as well. Exactly. I mean every every mission, like I said, even if it's something that is seems small and insignificant, of you know just heading over to State Department or heading over to the Capitol or something like that. Um, it is every, every day is zero fail.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a little bit about ONTIC's Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial that is why we created the Ontics Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable information through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of seasoned experts across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, Check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Switching gears, Cindy, you now are the Senior Director of Threat Management for us here at Ontic, and the Secret Service history and the threat management space is certainly very storied and goes back uh, many, many years, probably as a result of the aftermath of the Warren Commission and so forth. But what has helped you transition your experience into the kind of work you do for us now in the threat management space for multinational corporations and other public-private partners that we may have in this space?
1: Yeah, Fred, I think it kind of boils down to perspective of of looking at situations, it, looking at them very strategically, um, taking in the entire landscape, if you will, and and understanding cause and effect and consequence of actions. I think one of the things that I was trained or a way I was trained to think was, you know, what's two or three steps down the road? This decision is made or this, you know, this process is enacted. How does that affect things? Who does it affect? Who needs to know about who it affects? I, oftentimes I think decisions are made in a vacuum and people don't step back and and really look at the the greater landscape of how that decision is going to affect and change things because every, everything does, there's a, there's a domino effect to everything that we decide to do. Um, and not that it's a bad thing. Um, but I think that it's, it's something that, that folks sometimes don't take, to, take the time to think about. I think uh, I think that strategic thinking is is probably something that i that translates from my government experience into the private sector or what I hope that I've brought uh to ontic into the private sector
0: and as you get into the weeds Cindy, with uh some of the threat assessment training that you provide, which uh has kind of taken off like gangbusters here, what are some of the biggest takeaways or some of the feedback you hear? as a result of the
1: training that you give in this space? Well, you know, one of the things that I always say when I go into a training is that that I'm there to receive as much information as I'm there to give. Um, what I'm learning, the the challenges that that corporations are dealing with now, um, we've got so many different areas of concern. Um, privacy is a big concern that that is coming up these days. Um, so navigating around how we actually do our job—I mean, it was one thing, Fred, back when we were, you know, federal agents, yeah. and you know, getting information and storing information and things like that—that um, that wasn't a problem for us. Um, navigating that world in the private sector is requires, you know, some some planning and some skill um, to ensure that that people's information is kept private, to ensure that. Um, you know, we're, we're getting the information that we need to make an informed decision, um, but doing it in a way that is, uh, that is also respectful of, of privacy. Um, and I think we've managed to do that. I think we've managed to develop a system to be able to get, uh, get what we need to make an informed decision to keep people safe.
0: And as you look at your training sessions, Cindy, how long do they typically last? Well, we've, we've got
1: kind of a, a variety or a menu, if you will. Um, our, a typical basic training is a day long um, about, you know, seven hours or so of, of content where we have, you know, there's interaction between, like I said, I go in there not wanting to lecture all day. I'm there for discussion and, and to, to teach um, we can, we do um, half day trainings where we do s- tabletop scenarios. So you know, real cases um, or sort of combinations of cases um, that we've worked that we can, that we can sanitize and, and bring to a team so that they can practice, They can build that muscle memory of understanding how we look at things, why we make the decisions that we make. To determine if somebody poses a threat to us, they get to they get to have real life experience without actually having a real case at that time, and just going through the process. Uh, threat assessment is something you know you'll laugh at this, Fred. That that we had always said as as agents is is agent proof. It's made to be. You know something that you know it doesn't require you to have a PhD. It doesn't require you to be a clinical psychologist and and determine if somebody poses a risk or not. It's something that says, okay, these are the behaviors that I'm seeing, and I understand based on all the research that's been done, decades of research that's been done, that I'm seeing the same type of pre behavior. I'm seeing the same type of behavior of concern. And now I need to do something about this. So I think the really good part of the training is getting people comfortable in making that decision to say, okay, this is something that we need to do something about. We need to manage this. And then going through that management process. How do we take care of this? What do we do? Do we, you know, what do we provide to the individual of concern? But also, how do we keep everybody else safe? So using that protective intelligence to actually do that protection piece. You know, we we talk about how much we want to help the person of concern or the person of interest and provide them resources with with the understanding that we have a workforce that we need to keep safe as well. So using that protective intelligence to to, you know, bolster our security posture. What do we need to do with our gates and guards? What do we need who needs to have this information to ensure that the workspace is safe.
0: And it's such a complex uh, kind of issue, as as we know, Cindy. I can I can harken back to the early '80s, and I remember walking out of like Saint Elizabeth Hospital after interviewing a threat actor, and quite frankly, not knowing if that person's a threat or not. So, the kind of work that uh, you do in this space is is very unique, but. I would say that anybody could learn this if they applied uh some of the concepts and principles is is that a fair statement
1: yeah it it's it is a process again that was created to be operational when the very first um, studies were done um, it was it was taken from again from the perspective of the person who had committed the act and and we learned from that again, what behaviors we would, we need to be concerned about what understanding what we're seeing when we're seeing it, you know, before it was, you know, did they make a threat? Well, we know that oftentimes there's not a direct threat to a person or to a entity, to a place, but it's the behavior. It's the, it's statements that are concerning. Um, opening up our, our minds and saying, okay, I'm not looking for that direct threat. What I'm looking at is that concerning behavior that that is is easy to understand if I know that that's what I'm looking for, if that makes sense. It's like I'm not looking for that direct threat. I'm looking for that behavior. Um, and like you said, you can talk to somebody, and you may walk out of an interview and say – I'm not 100% sure that this person is a threat or they're not. But what I can do is I can manage the situation and I can say, okay, I do know that they, there's something that needs to be done. And if it's a person who is an employee and they're showing some signs of, of stress, they're showing some bad behavior in the workplace, they're doing some things that are concerning others, well, we can address those things best by providing resources to that person, best by, you know, recommending some counseling or some training or things like that, but also keeping in mind, okay, again, I'm going to do as much as I can for this individual, but I have a whole bunch of other individuals that I also have to keep safe. So putting some measures in place to ensure safety of others as well.
0: Cindy, as you look back on your Secret Service career, what was the most fun job that you had?
1: I would have to say um being a senior supervisor on the president's detail was, was by far the best job that I had. I, I always say I had a very blessed career. I, I did a lot of, a lot of fun things, a lot of interesting things. Um But I would say my time spent at the white house as a senior supervisor, um, By far was was the best job Um, working with the staff and getting to to intimately know the staff of uh, of the administration, being part of that, um, working with the with the folks in the military so closely with the uh, White House Military Office. That it's it's such a camaraderie. it's, it's really a small group of folks who, who actually get to be in that, that circle, if you will, um, and, and be there and, and witness history firsthand. I, I couldn't have asked for a better career.
0: Cindy, is there anything that I haven't
1: asked that you would like to say? It's an honor um, to have been in the Secret Service. I think it's, it's an amazing organization. When I started, um, again, back in 1989, I believe there were a thousand agents and I was one of 100 female agents at that time. Um, it has grown, it has blossomed. Um, it is, it is a diverse and, um, and well-trained organization. Um, and you know, I think Fred, you can appreciate this when you have something that's such a, such a family, such a brotherhood, if you will, um, to go into the private sector, um, is, is a, is a big step, but I also feel just as honored to be where I am today. Um, I think we are doing great things to keep people safe, um, just you know, continuing what I've done for the past three decades, which is really hard to say. Because <laughs> it means I'm getting old. Um, but I, I I think that, you know, carrying that on to the private sector and and again doing things that are are really important and keeping folks safe, um, you know, I, I couldn't be more honored. Well thank you, Cindy,
0: and I'm sure I speak for a heck of a lot of people when I say we certainly thank you for your years of uh, keeping our highest level elected officials safe. And thank you for being on the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: Thanks, Fred. It was my honor. Appreciate it.
0: This episode was brought to you by the ONTIC Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co center. Again, that's ontic.co center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverdi Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.